Hi, everybody. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love getting immediate feedback. Uh, so I would like to tell you uh, two, a couple things about myself uh, before we begin. The first thing that I want you to know is that I am a storyteller. I love telling a good story. Um, the second thing that I wanted to tell you about me is that when I went to college, I went for journalism. And one of the things that you learn is you look at the story and you ask questions. You figure out who, who is there, why are they there, and what are they doing there. And that's how, sort of how we, I developed this message today. Last night didn't hear that. You get that. That's just for you guys. So what I want to do uh, is tell you a story today. I, I talked with a pastor friend of mine. He said, you're not telling a story. You are synthesizing multiple biblical accounts into the essential scriptural narrative. <laughs> that, that does not roll off the tongue. I'm going to tell you a story today. <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories from the New Testament. It takes place on a high mountain somewhere in the north of Israel, probably near Caesarea Philippi. Now, many of the stories that we read in the Bible are not linear. They don't start at point A and then proceed and end at point B. They're usually stories within stories. They nest within other stories. They loop back and they reinforce thousands of years of biblical history that came before them. And then they project forward and they tell us about God's heart for the things that are going to come. And this is one of those stories. And it's my favorite story. Uh, this is an account that you can read in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. You can read this in Matthew 17, you can read this in Mark 9, and you can read this in Luke 9. And I want you to go read them. In fact, I want you to read them so much that I want to recommend to you that if you have a phone, there's an app called the Bible, right? If you're in the bathroom, there's a little poster that says version. get the Bible app for your phone. And if you say, oh, Jeremiah, I don't have time to read the Bible, I've got great news for you, right? It'll read to you, right? James and his brother John oh, and man. led them up on a high right? mountain. So you can probably read these chapters or have the phone read these chapters to you on your way home today. You can get through most of them. So as we go on, I'm going to recommend some chapters that I think you'd get a lot out of if you read. And one of the things my wife recommended is that I put up a slide at the end with all of them. So you like, at the end, like, here's your homework. It's going to be great. <laughs> so let's get to the story. We're going to blend together parts of Matthew, part of Mark, and part of Luke to get a real well-rounded account of what happened here. After about a week, Jesus took along Peter, John, James, and went up on a high mountain to pray. As he was praying, Jesus was transfigured in front of them, as bright as the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men appeared, Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were in a deep sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were standing with him. As the two men were departing from him, Jesus said to Peter, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. 
they became afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When they heard this, they were terrified and fell face down. Jesus came and touched them, saying, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what raised from the dead meant. Have you ever watched a movie and noticed that the director intentionally frames the shot to include something? Like Schindler's List, there's a little girl in a red coat. Or you're watching a, they're, they're reading a book and they, you can see the title. And it's one of those things where they've done this on purpose because they want to catch your interest and they want to make you ask questions and figure out. So, like I said, I'm a storyteller, I'm a journalism major, we notice these things. And so, in, in digging into this account, you understand that nothing in the Bible happens accidentally. It's all there on purpose. So, that's what I want to ponder with you today. For what purpose was Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration? For what purpose was Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration? And the disciples, specifically Peter. For what purpose was Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration? And then for all of us, for what purpose did the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew, Mark, and Luke to all include this? It's there for a reason. Why? So that's, that's what I hope to answer today. Why did all three of them decide we needed to read this story? So let's start with Moses. Back in Exodus chapter 32, Moses is speaking to God face to face, as close to face to face as any human being ever has. And while this is happening, he's surrounded by a cloud. There's all kinds of, it's an amazing chapter. This is a chapter that you should read, by the way, Exodus 32. Um, while this is happening, at the base of the mountain, all of the people of Israel are making an idol for themselves. Now, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but idols are generally discouraged. This is a bad thing. It's even worse when you realize that they're at the base of the mountain, and right at the top of the mountain, they can all see that God is at the top of the mountain. Like, in the sight of God's cloud, they've decided what we need is a golden calf. And what's even worse is that 40 days ago, when Moses went up the mountain, they all agreed to abide by 10 simple rules. They had a ceremony and everything, binding them to the covenant. And if you haven't read the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, I recommend you should, the first two rules are you will have no other gods except for me, and you will not make any graven images, no idols. And here they are, 40 days later, in the sight of God, and they've broken them both. This is not a good day for Moses. God says, Moses, the people that you brought out of Egypt are acting treacherously. Go down to their camp now. And so he does. In Exodus 32, then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Moses wants you to be sure that you know what he has in his hands. These are not just any tablets. These are God's tablets. 
These are the tablets that God himself has written on. He, he reinforces the point several times because he wants you to understand when I show you this next verse, all that it means. These are God's tablets. What's he holding in his hands? God's tablets. Verse 19, as he approached the camp and saw the golden calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. I, I know this is hard to believe, but uh, sometimes, very seldomly, my very passionate wife and I uh, disagree. We have disagreements. <laughs> uh, and on those rare occasions that we disagree, uh, my wife accuses me of using a, t- a, t- a tone of voice that she calls my reasonable voice. And uh, once upon a time, I'm a storyteller, once upon a time, we were having a particularly uh, vibrant disagreement in the kitchen. And I, one, well, I don't want to say I, one of us used his reasonable voice. I don't want to tell you which one of us. <laughs> and in response to one of us using the reasonable voice, the other one of us uh, kicked a box, a cardboard box that had recycling to go out. And I'm not going to tell you which one of us did that. But when she kicked the box, <laughs> a glass bottle flew out of the box. We didn't know it was in there and right into and then through our uh, oven door, uh, which, is, which is the story of how I bought a new oven with Wi-Fi. But have you ever smashed something that you couldn't replace? Have you ever done that? Because Moses has. Moses tells the people in verse 30, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. There's a real important word here. Perhaps. Moses says, I'm not sure how, but I'm going to go to the Lord and somehow I'm going to try and atone for this horrible thing that you've done. Moses is acting as a mediator between God and man. Moses is hoping to find a way to reconcile the relationship between God's people and God, to bring them back into a right alignment. When he does, he comes before God empty-handed. So Moses returns to the Lord in Exodus 32, and he says, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, Erase me from the book you've written. If only. There's another translation that I love called the Hebrew Bible. It's a modern translation. It's very new from, from a Jewish perspective, from the Hebrew perspective. And it translates it like this. Moses comes before God and says, I beg of you, if you would bear their offense, dot, dot, dot. A lot of times when we say if, if is followed by then. It's kind of an equation. If you will do this, then I will do that. Moses comes before God empty-handed. He makes an if, but he doesn't have a theological framework. He can't see the other side of the equation. He doesn't know what the then is. He says, if you would bear their offenses, but if not, 
What does this have to do with the Mount of Transfiguration? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) In his conversations with God, in acting as a mediator, and in attempting to reconcile the relationship between God and his covenant people, Moses asks God to see his glory. He says, show me your glory. And God allows it. And we read about that in Exodus 34. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Moses immediately fell low on the ground and worshipped. I want you to imagine that you're Moses. We're going to imagine a few times today. I want you to imagine that you're Moses, shattering the tablets so mad that you throw God's tablets on the ground and smash them into a million pieces. Imagine how or fearful you'd have to be, how long that walk back up the mountain would have to be to ask God to do, could you, again, how afraid you might have to feel if you're asking God to atone for, for sins and you don't have the other half of the equation, if only you would bear their offenses. And the Lord comes and he proclaims his name. You fall down on your face on the mountain in worship. And I want you to imagine that you're Moses. You look up and you see the full manifestation of the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why? was Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration. You read scholars write, they say Moses is there to represent the law. Moses is there to act as a witness. Moses is there to bring his gravitas. I don't believe it. I think we see a clue in our original text. Jesus and Moses are discussing what he would accomplish by his departure from Jerusalem. The word departure is exodus in the Greek. It's the same word that they use to describe Moses taking the people out of Egypt and establishing a covenant with God in the desert. If Moses is a dead and resurrected Moses, he would either not need to know what Jesus is going to accomplish, or he wouldn't care because he's dead. God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. It wouldn't matter to a dead Moses, but to an alive Moses, it would matter why Jesus is going to depart through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. Moses is acting as a mediator. Jesus is the mediator. Moses is meeting the mediator. Moses went to try and atone. Perhaps I can atone. Jesus is the atonement. Moses asks God, if only you would bear their offenses. Jesus is the bearer of offenses. Only an alive Moses would need to have this conversation with Jesus. That's why I think Moses is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's there to see his role as a lawgiver and a mediator and the atonement perfected in the physical manifestation of the goodness of God, Jesus Christ. So, let's talk about Elijah. Elijah's story is told very briefly in the book of 1 Kings, a little bit in the 2 Kings. Uh, 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. Again, you're going to get a lot out of it if you read it. They're fantastic. I would not want to be Elijah because they were kind of terrible to live through, but you read them and boy, they're fantastic. Uh, Elijah uh, spent the last three years 
in exile in the land of Phoenicia because he's being threatened by the Queen Jezebel. So he's run for his life and he's hiding out. Uh, after three years, he comes back. And he finds that the king and queen have murdered all of the priests and prophets of God. He finds that they've torn down the altars to God. He finds that they've built temples to Baal and Asherah. And he finds that there are 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat dinner every single night with the queen in the, in the palace. Elijah confronts the king and all of his false prophets on Mount Hermon, and it is an amazing read. It is fantastic. You should read it. First Kings 17, 18, 19. It's like an action movie, right? Elijah confronts them all. He's really funny about it. He calls down fire from heaven, and God provides fire from heaven. It burns up the sacrifice. It burns up the altar, the stones, the water, everything. All the people are there. They all fall down on their face, and they say, oh, the Lord, he is God. This is like a triumph for Elijah, you would think. 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel, the king tells the queen, everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, may the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of these by this time tomorrow. When Elijah saw that, he ran for his life. It's not when Elijah saw fire from heaven. It's when Elijah saw messengers come from the queen that he ran for his life. What is it that Elijah saw? Even in the face of God's undeniable power sending fire from heaven, even in the face of all the people of northern Israel falling down and saying, the Lord is God. We're on your team now. Forget those guys. Even after killing all the false prophets, Elijah could see the very next day that nothing had changed in their hearts. The messengers still obeying the king and the queen. Have you ever felt scared and alone? Uh, once upon a time, uh, Karen was pregnant with baby number two. And on a normal day, bleeding is a bad thing, right? It's uh, an especially bad thing when you're pregnant. So if you ever want to feel scared and alone, I would recommend an exam room in the emergency room, waiting for the PA to come in and tell you, there's nothing we can do. Go home. You're going to lose your 12-week-old baby. That's a room that goes from scary or from afraid to scary real quick. Now, the rest of that story is not mine to tell. The rest of that story is Karen's to tell. Uh, but spoiler alert, most of you have met Jack. So it has a happy ending. Afraid. I think that's how Elijah feels. He's afraid a lot. All alone for three years, separated from his family and from his friends, holding out hope for something that never comes. When he finally goes home, when it's time for him to confront the king and queen, nothing feels the way that it should. Nothing goes the way he thinks it should. And the very next day, the same terrible king and queen are still in charge. The people are still idolatrous at heart. They've forsaken the covenant, and now they're coming to kill him. So Elijah, if you read the story, walks into the desert, and he begs God to kill him. God instead, in his mercy, leads Elijah through the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And where does God lead Elijah? He leads him right back to Mount Sinai, to the very same mountain 
where God caused it to pass by Moses. Probably to the same rock. I'd like to think he's in the same cave that God shielded Moses in. Suddenly, the word of the Lord came to him. And the word of the Lord, who, just time out, uh, who does John teach us that the word of the Lord is? Right? Okay, just wanted to loop this story back, right? Because they loop. And the word of the Lord said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And now... They're looking for me to take my life. Then the word of the Lord said, he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and stood at the entrance to the cave. I want you to imagine that you're Elijah. You're terrified, so scared for your life, that you've run away into the desert, you've begged God to kill you before your enemies can kill you. You are heartbroken over your people. Your family have abandoned the covenant with their God. God leads you to a cave on a mountain and suddenly the word of the Lord comes to you and asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? The mountain is torn apart by wind and earthquake and fire, but you know the Lord is not in those things. It's not until you hear a minute stillness that you know the presence of God is there. You throw your cloak over your face, step out into the presence of God, and when you remove your cloak, you see the physical manifestation of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Why would Elijah be on the Mount of Transfiguration? For what purpose? Just like Moses, Elijah is there to learn. He needs to learn what Jesus Christ is going to accomplish. He meets the physical manifestation of the word of God made flesh. The word that he's heard his whole life has a body, has a person. Elijah is heartbroken over the abandonment of the covenant. But Jesus is going to accomplish the establishment of a new covenant. That is, not just a new covenant, it's the fulfillment of all the prophecies that Elijah had heard through his time, and will be the accomplishment of the prophecies that Elijah knows are to come. And Elijah's on the Mount of Transfiguration, I think, to overcome his fear. If you read the rest of his story, Elijah is never afraid again. It's pretty great. You come away from meeting with God, the glory of God changed. More than anything else, I think Elijah is on the Mount of Transfiguration to be strengthened. What does he say over and over? I'm the only one. And when the word of the Lord speaks to Elijah, he lets him know you are not alone. You'll never be alone. That even though he was in exile for three years, God kept a remnant of 7,000 who had never knelt, bowed their knee to Baal. That there would always be a remnant in the land for a thousand generations and for all time. So why was Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration? Our story begins very interestingly. 
after about a week. A week after what? Well, let's find out. Let's look at Matthew 16, the chapter that comes right before. Beginning in 13, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. This is, what a great day for Peter, right? What a great day. Blessed are you, Peter. My father told you this. He's given you understanding. He gets a new name. He was Simon and now he's Peter. He's the rock, right? What happens in the immediately following verse? Does anybody know what happens? From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to be killed, and to be raised on the third day. Blessed Peter. Blessed Peter who receives understanding from God. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Oh, no, Lord. This will never happen to you. But he ever been slain. I don't want to, oh, oh. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns but human concerns. Wow. I Whiplash, right? Blessed are you, Peter. Get behind me, Satan. What a, what a day. <laughs> Have you ever said something that you immediately regretted? I have. I say a lot of things. I talk a lot. I'm a storyteller. There are a lot of times, I could tell you a lot of times, where I regretted saying things. Um, you ever been part of a group text? A group text on your cell phone? This might be for, for people, a certain cl- group of people. You're on a group text and you don't pay real close attention to who else is on the group text. And then you say something that is inarguably true. <laughs> but profoundly unkind <laughs> about someone on that group text. And then it, say, it goes through the ether. And you get that boop. And then your phone rings. So did you know that you just sent that text? So-and-so was on the text. And you go, oh. <sighs> I did not. I mean, uh, oh, boy. Maybe you're a better person than I am. Maybe. Probably. Let's imagine, again, that you're Peter, right? Jesus' rebuke is still stinging in your ears. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. It's just a week later. When someone says an unkind thing to you, how often does it just roll around in your head? Free of charge. When you say something that you immediately regret, how often does that roll around in your mind over and over? These words are still ringing in Peter's ear. When Jesus comes and says, let's go up the mountain. That's a long walk up the mountain. 
They all say it was a high mountain. And Jesus' rebuke is still rolling around in your head. Your stupid words are still rolling around in your head. You get to the top of the mountain. It's late. You're laying down trying to sleep by the fire. Jesus is walking off a little ways to pray. And that is what is rolling around in your head. Oh, what, what did I say? How did I miss it? Oh, that hurts. Until you finally drift off to sleep. And then suddenly, you are blinded by a light brighter than the sun, dazzling light, and you see the capital M, capital G, majestic glory of God come through the person of Jesus Christ. Why is Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration? Just like Moses, just like Elijah, Peter needs to learn all that Jesus is going to accomplish through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem and all that it meant to depart in Jerusalem. Jesus said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Peter had received some understanding from God, but he didn't receive all understanding from God. And when Peter is on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's to hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When he tells you he needs to suffer and die and be raised from the dead, listen to him. Peter himself tells us in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, another, you should read the whole book, it's a short book, it's a letter, why he was on the mountain. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the capital M, capital G, majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's on the Mount of Transfiguration to learn, just like Moses, just like Elijah, that the entire purpose of Jesus' life is to become the atoning sacrifice, to become the mediator, to become the bearer of offenses, and to assemble a remnant to himself. The glorification of Jesus Christ is the entire purpose of creation. That's it, to glorify Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us? Why did they include this story for us? Moses and Elijah and Peter each beheld the glory of God, I would say, in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you? Have you beheld the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Look around. Because according to Jesus, this room is where you are supposed to see it. In John 17, Jesus is praying for you and for me, and for us, and for all believers to come. He prays, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through the disciples' word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I, Jesus, have given them, that's you, the glory that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me. So that they may be made 
partially one. Right? So that we can have petty divisions. So that we can hate each other over politics. So that we can be made completely one. That's the purpose. So that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved the world as much as you have loved me. John 3, God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Jesus says he is giving you and me, that's us, the glory that the Father gave him specifically so that we, you and me, us, are one, completely one, as one as Jesus is with the Father. So that we are one, so that the world knows, so that the world comes to know that God loves them as much as he loves Jesus. Let me ask you again, have you seen the glory of God? Because this is the room where you're supposed to see it. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, we all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at what? At the glory of the Lord. And we are what? Being transformed into the same image That image is the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the image of the glory of the Lord from glory to glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are looking at the glory of the Lord in this room. We are looking at the glory of the Lord in our secret place. And as we gaze upon the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the image day by day. It's not like skipping from chapter 1 to chapter 12, and now you're at the end of the book. It's turning a page every day. It's moving through the story. It's becoming more and more like the glory of God, the image of the glory of God every day. Being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. So, look around the room. This right here is where the glory of God that Jesus gives us is present and is supposed to be present. Just like the glory of God that Moses beheld on Mount Sinai, it's a glory that requires something from you. It requires personal holiness. Just like the glory of God beheld by Elijah, it's a glory that can't be found in the whirlwind of activity, the whirlwind of how you feel, the fires that you can't control, the earthquakes that shake your life. That is not where the glory of the Lord is. The glory of the Lord is found in the minute stillness of the presence of God. It's a glory that was not seen by the thousands of people, the multitudes who followed Jesus around. It's a glory that wasn't seen by the 72 or 70 disciples that Jesus commissioned in his name and with his power to go heal and cast out demons. Those 70 didn't see the glory. It wasn't a glory that was seen by the 12 apostles. It was a glory that was only seen by the three who pressed in, who developed a deeper relationship with Jesus and who became his best friends. Those are the three who saw it. Like the glory of God beheld by Peter, James, and John, it is a glory that asks us to submit our own preconceptions about who God is and what he should do to the truth that he will reveal to you about what he wants to do and what he will do. 
So I'm not going to ask you to come to the altar and confess how you've fallen short of the glory of God because if you've read Romans, and you should read Romans, (laughs) all have fallen short of the glory of God. Obviously afterwards, if you want prayer, people want to pray with you. But I'm not going to ask you to come and I've fallen short. Instead, I want to give you homework. You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. I want to ask you to find time this week to go from this place and do. A few weeks ago when I was leading worship, I think it was a Saturday night, the author of Hebrews said that we bring a sacrifice of praise. And in the Old Testament, David says, I will not offer an offering that costs me nothing. Right? You should not come here and expect to be fed and then go and do nothing and then come back here next week and expect to be fed again. You're supposed to go from here and do. You're supposed to go from here and feed yourself. I'm asking you to do that. What I want you to do is find time this week to seek out the silent place, the place of minute stillness, the place where you can hear a still small voice. And do it. Press in and listen. I want you to ask God to reveal to you where your shortcomings are. Because if you ask him, he will tell you. He's faithful. Moses struggled with anger. He smashed the tablets. He killed a guy in Egypt. He was an angry guy. Elijah struggled with fear. He ran for his life, repeatedly terrified. Peter, what can we say about Peter? He was pretty impulsive. I mean, he was opinionated. He was strong-headed. None of that stopped them from seeing the glory of God. And your shortcomings, your emotions, don't have to stop you. You submit them to the Lord. They won't stop you if you're interested in pressing in and seeing the glory of God. They all saw the glory of God, and you can too, privately and corporately. Every one of those people came away from seeing the glory of God changed. But it didn't make them perfect. You read the rest of Moses' story, he never makes it to the promised land because he's still kind of a stubborn guy. He's still kind of a prideful guy. Elijah has a good ending. Peter chops a guy's ear off. (laughs) Peter denies Jesus with an oath. Like, this is right afterwards. You're not going to come away from the glory of the Lord changed. It's not chapter one to the end of the book. It's a day by day by day by day, transformed from glory to glory to glory. Most importantly this week, I want you to not just go into your room and pray, not just go into your room and ask God to reveal to you what you can change. I want you to actually do it, right? The glory of God for us, Jesus says, is found in our unity in this room. What I want you to do is to ask God how you can help bring your relationship with someone in this room into a better alignment. Jesus says that this connection is the same connection as this connection. He's given us the same relationship that he has with the Father. I want you to find a way to bring your relationship with someone here into a better alignment with what God has for us. Because that unity in this body is the unity that will bring the world to Jesus. That's what Jesus said. That's not me. That's Jesus. Christianity is not about pretending to be someone that you aren't. It's about seeking out the glory of God every day and being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ every day. Amen? Here's your homework. 
These are the chapters I think you'd get a lot out of reading. I really do. You can listen to them. I'll leave that up. And those are the things I want you to do. Take a picture of it. Seek the glory of the Lord in the quiet place. Ask him to reveal his heart to you. Ask him to reveal your shortcomings and then do something about it. And if you do that, you will make this place a better place and you will make this place a better place where Jesus is glorified. The whole point of creation, the only reason to come here is to glorify Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the glory that you've given us. Thank you that this relationship here is the glory that you gave Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I ask that this week as we push into your word, as we set time to meet with you and to listen, not just bring you complaints, but to listen in the quiet place, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Father, our desire is that we would be one with one another, that we would be one with Jesus, and that we would be one with you all together. That's the miracle. That's the glory of God, and that's something that we can't do alone. It's something we can only do in you and with you and through you. Jesus, partner with us. Help us. And give us the courage, not just to ask, but to do something about it. Holy Spirit, just come and speak to our hearts this week and help us do what we need to do. Bring us into alignment so that we can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.